Hello and welcome to the symposium. Today for Symposium 49, we're joined by Harry. Hello. Nice to have you here. Nice to be back. Great. And we are going to talk about philosophy. What it is, we're going to basically have a really relaxed discussion and talk about basic stuff about philosophy. Now, I think it gets sort of a bad name in some circles. And sometimes this is justified and sometimes I think it is not. And ultimately, I think that it has a lot of value to offer. It has significant things to teach us. And if we just follow the voices that tell us that it's a bad thing or it's a waste of time, we're going to miss significant valuable insights that will actually help us improve both our lives personally and interpersonally and socially as well. I think there is a conception among many people that a lot of philosophy is um, people with far too much time on their hands pontificating about ideas and concepts that not many people actually care about. And certainly I'm sure there are different strands of philosophy, in particular philosophers, that that applies to more than others. But it's a very negative way of looking at a, an incredibly diverse and important field of work. I think you're right to an extent. And this is a conception of philosophy that people have. And I think that it's primarily philosophers who are to blame. <laughs> They've got a lot to answer for. Yes, because when you're basically practicing your craft, let's say, and you do it in a horrible manner, then it's not a fault of people who start saying, well, this craft is a waste of time. But hopefully I think that we can show the good things that come with it. Yeah, no, there's plenty of good to have come from philosophy. In fact, a lot of ancient Greek philosophy is the basis for Western ethics and morality these days, or at least the stated basis for why it is that we believe and behave in the ways that we do these days. I think you're correct, and I think that this is really important to notice because it's good to sit down and have a look at the tradition of Western civilization and look at you know who contributed what. And this is a very long process. And it sort of creates a, some, a conception of some cultural continuities between different societies that we nowadays call Western. And I think it's, a, it's really interesting because we look at our history. And the more we read about our history and the history of, of other nations and people, the, more, the better we understand ourselves. And especially when we go back to the ancient times, and even today somewhat, it's important to recognise that the philosophers that we're talking about were not simply stuffy old men sitting around in a classroom debating one another for hours and hours. Oftentimes they had high positions within political offices as well, like Cicero, um, uh, Aristotle was an advisor to Alexander the Great, there's many positions that these people took that meant that their philosophizing was not simply them speaking to the wind. They were speaking to men of great importance and potentially influencing their decisions or uh, making incredibly influential decisions themselves. Some of them were also warriors. They say also that Socrates was a very fierce warrior. He was an uber chad. I imagine so. And Plato, I mean, that wasn't his name. That was his nickname because he was yes. a champion. Uh, wasn't he an Olympic wrestler? I've, I've heard the tale. I'm not exactly <laughs> certain it was true, but they say that he had a very broad chest. And mm. Plato comes from Platis. That had a, has a very broad chest. 
but also they say that uh, Socrates was incredibly an incredibly good fighter and he he was incredibly resilient to the elements of nature everyone else was cold and stuff he wasn't well the funny thing is that can make some logical sense in my mind because he was so brazen in his questioning of other people to the point of outright annoyance yeah. to them that he must have known he could take himself in a fight if he was if his stated goal for most occasions was to annoy enough people yes <laughs> that they end up wanting him to take hemlock great <laughs> <laughs> well one fun thing is to see that in the platonic dialogues most of the interlocutors that uh, socrates is going out and pissing off were prominent athenians and uh, he had ties to the Athenian aristocracy and he was really hated for this. Anyway, let us talk about right now, about 2023 and about our societies right now. A lot of people think that basically philosophy is a waste of time because philosophers are people who are fundamentally doing something like the following. They paralyze themselves by analysis. It's in a, in a slogan, it's paralysis by analysis. The idea is that you sit down and you think and you don't act. You forget the maxim of Elvis, which is a little less conversation, a little more action. <laughs> According to that misconception of what philosophy is, is no action and too much conversation and pondering. And to an extent, I think that there are some people who do this. And because they do this, they give a bad name to philosophy. Can you think of any examples that you'd like to name? I can think of many, <laughs> but... Uh, Whether you'd like to name them or not is a different question. Yeah, but they're... Honestly, I think that they are the majority. The majority of people who deal with philosophy nowadays in departments are doing that, precisely this. So, in a way, it seemed like a spicy question, but in another it's not because it's... I can't give you an answer, not because I... There's I'm a, just too many of no, them. It, it's not because I'm afraid to give you an answer, it's just because <laughs> <laughs> the important thing is to find someone who doesn't do this. That's, a, that's probably a good way yeah. of orientating it, because I think that... It would be unfair if I picked one of them, because... <laughs> <laughs> you'd imply that the rest of them don't do the same yeah. thing. I think there is a problem these days where a lot of people who are going into it probably are viewing it as something of historical importance to be studied, but something that these days is more of a leisurely yeah. activity to get into where you can get paid for reading a load of books and writing a lot, and then yeah. you don't actually have to do much. You see, that's interesting because I'm willing to bet that these people are saying that, for instance, they are hardcore realists and you know they, they're no-nonsense types, and you know, say, I have no time for thinking, enough talk, action, and all on philosophy. But the fun thing is that, for instance, people like Machiavelli, who is, you know, the realist, he was going back to antiquity in order to give uh, insights and, and because he thought that the antiquity can give us guidance for action right now. And in the beginning of Discourses of, Li of Livy, he is lamenting against his contemporary Florentines who thought that antiquity is something just to be marveled and uh, you just buy pieces of uh, statues, as they say, but something that doesn't give us guidance. He said, no, absolutely not. This is completely mistaken. It can give us good guidance. Oh, absolutely. The idea that history is something that's 
cordoned off to the past yeah. and can't teach us any contemporary lessons. The situations that we find ourselves in these days may have particular unique contingencies to them, but they are certainly not unique overall in their general composition to situations that people of the past may have found themselves in. Yeah. And so if we look to the past and see what worked back then, what failed back then, that can give us some kind of guidance of how to work into the future. It won't give us all of the answers, but it can help us. Yes. And one thing to, be, uh, to say here is that when people encounter other people who claim to be philosophers and act in this particular way, I think they're justified in thinking that philosophy is a waste of time. And that's the issue that, you know, the, the song by Bon Jovi, you give love a bad name. <laughs> you can say you give philosophy a bad name to these people. You're feeling very musical this morning. Yeah, I have, I have, I'm in a good mood because I really enjoyed my segment yesterday. I'm very glad to hear that. Yes. Yeah, I think as well, you can speak more accurately to this, but the impression that I get is, as with much of the universities, the philosophy departments are absolutely infested with leftists. Yes. And they indulge, we'll get <laughs> they indulge in a very um, indulgent style of yeah. philosophy where it's all, I mean, a lot of philosophy is responding and adding to philosophers that came before them. But all of the philosophers that came before them seem to have been the kind who are more interested in filling word count than actually presenting interesting ideas in an engaging way and so they're building on a tradition where what you're mainly trying to do is sound smart rather than be smart. Yes, I only disagree with one part which makes it even more spicy and funny. Alright, okay. I'm willing to bet that the majority of academics are not necessarily leftists in, in philosophy. Why am I saying this? I'm not saying that they're, they, they're right-wing or something. I'm saying that the vast majority of them, I believe, are not political. It is just that they are afraid of the minority that runs the bureaucracy. So you have a lot of people in philosophy departments who are not necessarily political. They're neither left-wing nor right-wing, but because the bureaucracy has become overwhelmingly left-wing, they don't challenge several tenets of that bureaucracy. That's why you get the other view that is, I would say, justified, that, philosoph that philosophers are so sometimes weak and they don't challenge things. Because if you see some people who get paid to think right and talk about their ideas, but they routinely don't talk about the ideas that are important right now, then okay, you, you are justified in thinking that what they're doing is a waste of time and also a waste, waste of taxpayers' money. I mean, you would know better as to the composition of some of the English universities. I'm willing to bet that there are, there are departments where no one is political, but everyone else thinks every, each other are political and they play the, oh, yeah, I've, the, I've the political correctness this. game because they think everyone else is and no one does the first move. Yeah, I've thought about this as well, how it's probably likely that if one of them were to actually speak up and speak their mind properly, everybody else would go, oh, my, my chains have been released, I'm free, I can finally speak my mind. And everybody would realise all at the same time that, oh, you all think the same way that I do, or relatively similar. But that's, I think, what's so pernicious and 
parasitic about the culture that we live in right now is it has paralyzed people into fear who uh, to parrot beliefs that they otherwise wouldn't even amongst people that as you say don't even they don't even realize agree with them already on exactly. everything yeah it's absurd that's why i think that a very big number is not political it is just the bureaucracy that has been overwhelmingly left wing and that obviously after a while makes the left wingers the majority but you know i don't know exactly what happens in each department but the fact that a bureaucracy is being established and now it is for decades means that obviously there are people who get jobs because of their political affiliation and beliefs not because of their actual contribution to important discussions but one funny thing here is that you mentioned this idea that reminds me a lot of snobbery and pretended elitism and um, pretended superiority that mm. some people have and I must say I'm completely pissed off with this and when I see this I completely I, I just immediately it, it's a no-go for me it's a red card as far as I'm concerned because there are people who are trying to say that just because I read something I look down upon everyone else who hasn't and I find this despicable yeah it's a, it's a pretense of being above your station and I, I agree oftentimes uh, I've spoken with uh, Rory about this kind of mindset as well not that Rory embodies it Rory is a very humble and sincere man uh, but we've discussed the sorts of people who have a very snobbish attitude in the kind of way where they've got their preferences they know their preferences but in a, perhaps as an expression of insecurity they think oh well I need to I need to sound smart yeah. about my preferences and so I'm going to read this or say this it's um, to move it on to the su uh, subject that I'm that's very very close to my heart and the subject of music for instance it's like those people who say they only listen to classical music yeah. and because of that I'm automatically better than you because for some reason the strength of a composition doesn't matter by itself it's the fact that that composition is being played by a large orchestra in a theatre where a lot of people sit very quietly and then give very reserved round of applause once yeah. it's done that doesn't automatically make you better and behaving in such a way makes you look like a weird creep it doesn't make you better than anybody else in any way yeah. and sometimes some people affect philosophy yeah. as that aesthetic as well and I want to share a pathetic story. I found this absolutely pathetic. And uh, you definitely see this with a lot of people who do primarily continental philosophy. Uh, I'll explain and elaborate in a bit, but it's more, you know, about the meaning of being and, you know, let's talk about the lived experience of man in late stage capitalism and very <laughs> abstract you know what things that like, that. Like, that sounds don't like say it. Don't say that it. That sounds like applied anthropology. Pra yeah. Practical anthropology. <laughs> Kant is not pleased. <laughs> yes. So at some point I went to a convention and there were many speeches simultaneously had in several, you know, rooms. And I went into one and it was a French philosopher. I I'm, I'm not ditching French philosophy, by the way, because one of my favorite philosophers was Descartes. I, I must say this. But, and also Montesquieu. Montesquieu mm. is really great. But he was someone, you know, 20th century French. He was banging his, his hands on a table, speaking French in Greece. And he had a translator there who was translating. And he was, you know, he was smoking, banging his head, shouting. And it was 
the weirdest and most pathetic thing I've seen in philosophy. It's just, why do you do this? It's just only oh, strictly performative. I think they, they, he probably thought that he was being really rhetorically effective. I'm embodying the warrior spirit through my slamming hands on this table. Yeah, but it was this pretended elitism and eccentrism. You know, if you are an eccentric, okay, why do you need to show it? Well, I suppose a, a legitimate eccentric yeah. is eccentric in ways that come naturally to him. Yeah. But that, as you say, sounds very performative. Yeah, you're correct. I may have uh, misused the word here, but what I want to say ultimately is that if you think on the one hand that you are, you know, the supreme elite and the moral superior, why do you feel the need to, to be clownish in front of people in order to, for, for them to see you as, ooh, this guy, this is a great guy, this is a very elitist guy? Well, having tried to eat as many McDonald's burgers in a minute as possible on the podcast, I can't speak about public performance of clownishness. Uh, but I wasn't doing that to try and look smart. I was doing that for fun. You, you need to have a competition with LA Beast. I, di I didn't even get through one burger, so okay, I don't okay. think I'm going to do very well in a competition. Yeah, just sorry to say this, I don't know where I've watched a video of someone eating an octuple bypass burger from, yeah, and in four or five minutes. Was this was one weird. of those... Was this one of those heart attack shacks that they have yeah, in yeah, America? Yeah. That, that's or if it. you have a heart attack, you get your meal free. 20,000 calories. Anyway, the issue is that what I want to say, and I want to get this out and set the record straight, is that when people see other people who claim to be philosophers, who are routinely looking down upon people, not explaining what they mean, but always waiting for others to allegedly have an antenna in their own mind or treat them as gurus or as you know supreme authorities and uh, or and they are basically under the analysis by paralysis maxim it is absolutely justified for you to think that philosophy is a waste of time but what i want to say and i want to also show with the symposium and also with our discussions is that that's not only it we can definitely talk about issues of value that affect people. We can definitely uh, talk and think about things, but also be, act and show resolve in our action and say, okay, enough talk, now it's time for action. And we can definitely, and we don't have to do this disgusting pretense of, you know, looking down on people. Because honestly, th th this is silly. Mm. I, I think that these, the, the, those who are looking down are... The goal is to raise everyone up. It's not to say, okay, listen, how, see how higher I am, how higher than you I am, and be there and just obey mm. me. Well, that's the thing. I think and it's... look up, up to me. No, that's not it. The goal is to raise people up. It's, it's a misconception of what some people think being classy or aristocratic is, whereas... The older conceptions of what the higher, upper aristocratic classes were supposed to do was to um, show some fraternal kindness to those yeah. lower on the social rungs to them. You, a lord would be able to go out amongst his people and, you know, he'd have a bodyguard or two, but generally not fear for his own life. 
Whereas I think it's a very modern conception and a very tyrannical, because obviously, again, it, it recurs throughout history. Like Aristotle said, and here's another way you can apply philosophy very well, because there are philosophers who, like Aristotle, were describing the situation that they saw around them and extracting the perennial truths from that, which is that a tyrant will surround himself by, with aliens, whereas a true ruler will surround himself with his own people. Yep. So if you think that it's being classy to denigrate those who are lower on the social classes than you, not for any specific reason, but purely because they're lower on the social classes to you, you are embodying the mindset more of a tyrant than a just ruler. Yeah. And it's also important to talk about philosophy in its historical context and show that a lot of, a lot of the philosophers we're talking about, especially the further in the, to the past we're going, they literally had the stake in their society and they were active members in it. It's not that they were constantly chatting and doing nothing. So, let us move to some ideas about what philosophy is. To start giving, you know, flesh and blood to this being we're talking about. Okay, so, the first thing to note is that if we were omni omniscient, we would not need it. So if we knew everything, there would be no need to develop philosophy. So you could say that philosophy is an activity and a discipline, but when we focus on the activity bit, it's the activity to make sense of things because things don't already make sense. If we were omniscient, we wouldn't need to make sense of things because we would know everything. It is because we are limited and we don't know everything that we have to develop science, philosophy, natural science, all of these disciplines that help us to understand things. I could still see in that situation uh, some, uh, a, a point where some kind of philosophy, it would look very alien to us, but some kind of philosophy might come out of it, mainly because even if everybody is omniscient in having the same facts available and the same level of knowledge, there may still be differing opinions on how to apply it practically and what to do with that. So that there would be philosophy as debate club, but as you say, there wouldn't be all of these different branches of philosophy and it would look completely alien to us. Although a society, bug, uh, a society in which everyone was omniscient would look alien to us anyway. I, th I just can't even imagine it because mm. what would it, if we were omniscient, by definition, we would know everything. So what would there be to debate? There would be no need for debate. There, 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 is, there are still scenarios okay. to, today where people can have the same set of facts and come to different conclusions with them of how you should use those facts and proceed with them. So I still could imagine in the abstract how it would be that people would come to, come, uh, come mm. to differing opinions of how to use their omniscience. But still, it would be so completely out of anything I can imagine. I think uh, maybe we are um, understanding the term in a different sense, because by omniscience I mean knowing every, literally everything. Mm -hmm. It's like knowing every fact. Whereas it seems to me that you're using it more like knowing something, and you say that two people can know something, but interpret it in different ways. But wouldn't you say that these interpretations have also some assumptions that they also think to be true? And in that case, if they give different interpretations, both, their assumptions cannot both be true. One would have false assumptions at least. 
Well, even with complete omniscience, and would omniscience, would that also include the ability to correctly predict how a particular line of action would conclude? Yeah, yeah literally. You know everything. Even, even then I can see groups of malicious people deciding that they, want, they purposefully want to take the actions that will hurt other people and benefit them rather than aid everybody. Because if you were omniscient, you could obviously conclude the decisions which would aid everybody. Okay. There, there, there could still be vindictive people. I don't think that would be philosophy, though. Okay. I, I think, I think um, we're maybe getting in the weeds here. Sadly, for, for better or worse, we're not omniscient. No, of course. Okay? So, we are limited beings. And because we are limited beings, we cannot have an infinite list of facts in front of our minds. We want to make sense of, of things. And you could say that, in a way, we are bombarded with all sorts of data around us. Especially in the information age. Exactly. And we try to make sense. Think of how many people say, look at this thing, make it make sense. <laughs> I know some friends of the show who do I mean, this. That's technically our job, isn't it? Yes. And I still can't make sense of it personally. <laughs> so, what happens is that we frequently try to create an interpretation of our experiences. And you could say that we do this because we want to understand who we are, where we are, and where we are going. And to a fundamental level, you could say that the human experience involves it involves some things that we interpret. So, for instance, let me give you my interpretation of the fundamental lived experience of human beings. I think that fundamentally speaking, the human condition and the human experience is an experience of a less than ideal world in constant motion. Now, this is an ethical interpretation of what I experience. Some people would perhaps not want to have that ethical interpretation and would want to view things in an amoral sense. But I don't view it this way. So I think that fundamentally speaking, as human beings, we live in a world that is not as we would have it to be, not as we would want it to be. Apart from not wanting it to be as it is and wanting it to be otherwise, I think that there is a clear sense in which we think that things could have been better in another sense, because Sometimes what we desire and what we think is right are not always the same. We may desire things that we don't think are necessarily right. And we interpret this world in constant motion. So I think that philosophy is one way in which we try to create an overarching narrative of where we fit within the world. And if that, is the fundament, if that is a good way to describe the fundamental human experience, then we have the element of ethics, the element of psychology, the element of normativity, where there is correctness and incorrectness, or you know, things don't fit. There's the element of error somewhere there. And all sorts of question, questions arise as to what we are to do if the world is in constant motion and it is less than ideal. I think that what where you're discussing there with the narrative is also where history can yes. fit into it as well. Because you're taking those threads from history that can conform or falsify yeah. to your interpretation of the facts. Yes. So, for instance, there are questions like, who are we? 
And that's a very interesting question because I think essentially it's a question about value. People conflate it with metaphysics, but metaphysics doesn't ask who are we. It primarily asks what are we. So for instance, if we could say that we're souls, we're disembodied souls, or that we are material beings, or that we are, let's say, matter and form combined in an Aristotelian fashion, that is an answer to the question, what are we? But the question, who are we, seems to me to be a bit more central and a bit more important for us. And that's fundamentally a question about value. So I think that if we look at the fundament, what, what happens? As human beings, we have a hum human experience. We experience the world. And we have language and reason. And we try to use our reason to understand our experiences and language to communicate our experiences to each other and our interpretation of our experiences. So, If you see this, it seems to me that we can generate almost every aspect and discipline of philosophy and sub-discipline from that. And why am I saying this? It is because this is what is ultimately lost by all the people that we discussed before who give philosophy a bad name. They don't take the extra step to show that this is all about answering who are we and acting according to our self-conception. So they get lost into either posing or paralysis by analysis, but at the end of the day, what they are doing and why they are doing us a disfa uh, disfavor no, uh, I used the weird disservice. Word. Disservice is they they don't look at how philosophy has always been about creating a holistic picture of our position in the universe in order to have a better sense of identity and better sense of our value system and communicate that to each other so we can also coexist mm. with others better. Yes, what you're describing there is that you're taking all of these various elements and creating a synthesis which can create the, um, I think Hopper put, puts it well, a, a grand narrative okay. for, for the world. And I think one of our issues with a lot of philosophy that comes out these days is that there is no synthesis, there is no narrative, it is explicitly oppositional to those concepts because yes. it is entirely deconstructive. Yes. Now I believe that there is room for deconstruction. You could argue that a lot of the philosophical critiques that um, older philosophers have provided, like Nietzsche, for instance, to things like Stoicism, have been deconstructive, but they've been in the service of crafting a different view of the world. They have been a critique saying, no, this is wrong, but here's what I think instead, whereas a lot of philosophy these days gets to the point of, I think this is wrong, and then never adds anything on top. Yes. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.